peace y'all thank you so much for joining me again for another episode of working our roots podcast this is episode three i'm really grateful that you have returned grateful to everyone who has listened to and shared the first two episodes shared their thoughts shared their feelings shared the episodes with others um I was really proud of episode two. It's magic, how we survive and what we're surviving. If you haven't checked that out, that is an interview a conversation between myself and longtime friends, my mother, Natalie, and um, Miss Barbara and Miss Jan. And like I say, I was proud of that episode. And at the end of the episode, I was really like tooting my own horn. Like, I know all of y'all that heard it feel great. And I got a lot of feedback that the episode really did make them feel great. That listening to this intergenerational conversation, um, listening to these adults, these elders talk about a commitment to one another and themselves um, unpacking ideas and lessons they learned about gender and sexuality and black womanhood and what it means to you know commit to themselves and commit to spirit every day and uh surrender surrender to uh a power that is greater than they that they absolutely have full access to and so um if you haven't listened to it, please check it out. Uh, for those of you who are coming back, you may have noticed that there was no episode in August. And that is because I was doing my best to stay alive as a white supremacist, patriarchal capitalism did everything in its power <laughs> to kill me. And um, yeah, trying to give myself grace and I don't mean that in some unique way like it was out to get me more than it was out to get any of us I hope we can connect with me acknowledge that <laughs> the systems we have learned to uh to uh, hang our hats on um one is dead but anyway I am uh grateful to be back it is now September holding a lot of space and yeah grief for um just the continued loss of life. Um, one of my aunts, my aunt Vera, transitioned recently. And um, just a lot of family members uh, facing grave changes, facing illness, uh, related or unrelated to COVID. It feels like COVID is sort of like the underlying and overlying. Uh, ooh, shit show. And then in between is just, all kind of chaos that pre-existed um, 2020 and 2019. So, yeah, holding space for all of us who can't even figure out how to acknowledge the madness of the moment, the um, the reality that what may have seemed like security at one point is no longer secure the reality that there have been many people who were never ever safe um the reality that we don't know what tomorrow will bring we don't know what the next hour will bring and that has always been true but it's so much more glaring now and uh yeah I really want us to be well I want us to have what we need I want us to be able to slow down enough and it seems even harder even though um folks like Trisha Hershey with the NAP ministry and um <clears throat> Dana Knuckles the People's Oracle talk about 
with revolution, um, decolonization beginning in the body. So, you know, it, it requires slowing down to tap into the body. And of course, in that ministry saying that we have to slow down, even if we can't figure out how we must steal rest, we must take rest. It is ours to take um, because there's technology in our rest. There is wisdom in our slowing down. There's understanding and sitting with our bodies and what our bodies are telling us. And I affirm that for us, as things continue to make less and less sense, I hope that as the bullshit falls away, we continue to tap into what does make sense, which has always made what has always made sense, what we have been intentionally kept from the stories that have been intentionally hidden, the the embodied wisdom that we are separated from in capitalism and in patriarchy and white supremacy Um don't let us know who we are. I affirm that we continue to tap into that, that we find the ways to do so, that we allow the ways to do so, that we surrender. We surrender to the ways to do so. So, yeah, that's my little spiel at the beginning. Um, my goal is for this episode to be kind of short because I am working on a lot of things right now, which I will share further on um real quick before i get into info about ways that you can support as well as sharing gratitude for my new patrons i wanted to say that uh there is a reflection piece to um it accompanies episode two it's magic what we uh how we survive and what we're surviving and there's a write-up i did on my patreon that uh just sit with some more follow-up thoughts about the episode, some lessons we can take from it, as well as some reflection, um, channeling opportunities for you to sit with yourself. So check that out if you are interested. And um, speaking of Patreon, as I said, this is an opportunity for um, anyone who is interested in uh, supporting my work financially. You can go to the website and... Um, pick a donation now. Uh, and once a month, you can go as little or as high as you would like. I have a few uh, suggested options, but it is just an opportunity to see some of the things I'm working on all the time and to su support, excuse me, help support this full-time uh, Sankofa shadow work, this channeling work, uh, this Brio work. And as I mentioned, there are um, some pretty cool essays up there right now and uh, that work is always evolving so if you're interested you can go to patreon.com slash sarah makiba thank you so much to my new patrons jada gaya dennis jamila thank you so much for believing in me for supporting my work for learning from and with me and sharing um your abundance with me i um i send it back tenfold i also want to give a shout out to nikki who hit my cash app up with a donation thank you so much i feel like people know how much it means but i just want to emphasize how much it means for you to share from your heart for you to share what you have particularly in a time such as this so thank you yeah just for connecting and uh building community affirming that uh we we want wellness we want to see each other well we uh we want the most for each other and that we are committed to learning i think 
as just a quick aside, I have a lot of insecurities. I don't even want to call it imposter syndrome anymore because it's like, what is that in a white supremacist, patriarchal capitalist society that says I am not shit? You know, obviously <laughs> I have insecurities, but uh, particularly when it comes around sharing what I know and trusting in how I know it, I have I had a sense for a long time that I'm always the last person to find anything out. And so if I have learned something, that means everybody else already knows it. And so waiting for me to catch up. And that's not to say that I'm not the last to find out anything, but it is affirming that now I know some good shit because I'd be sitting with my folk. And it is really affirming to me that there are people, that there are peers, that there are elders, that there are young people who uh, see and feel me as someone that they can learn from and um, get to know and love themselves more deeply. So that's what I'm trying to do with all my work. And um particularly as it relates to Patreon. As I mentioned, I have some other things that I'm working on coming up and patrons get discounts on uh, offerings. So that is definitely worth checking out. Uh, another more non-committal way to financially support my work is at PayPal. If you'd like to make um, any amount or donation, that is paypal.me slash Sarah McKeever as well as Cash App. And my Cash App name is dollar sign Sarah Days. Beyond financial support, which is largely necessary under capitalism. Um, and then also just like we all deserve to be compensated <laughs> for, for the work that we do uh, just being alive. In addition to that financial support, other ways of supporting are just sharing, sharing the work, listening to the work, sharing it with your friends, talking about it online, asking me questions, asking yourself questions. Oh, yeah, I think that's honestly a big, big part. Like, I know I have to lean more into marketing myself. And uh, again, the NAP ministry helps me get myself grace about that as well. But I know. People have to know that I am offering things. (laughs) I guess the point I'm making right now is how good I feel knowing that the work that I'm doing with myself and my ancestors and with spirit is affirming and encouraging and inspiring for other people to do their own work, whatever way that looks. Because it's so easy to feel like this shit is too much. And no, there's no way for any one individual to fix it. We aren't waiting for one, you know, quote unquote leader. We aren't waiting for some savior to come save us all. It is the, the individual and collective work on small bases and it grows. And so the fact that what comes very natural to me, just sitting up under my elders, and asking them questions, asking them questions I would want somebody to ask me. The fact that that is allowing people to ask themselves questions and um, see committed relationships that aren't necessarily romantic as a possibility for them to see sisterhood, to hear black women in their 60s and 70s saying, this is what I've thought all my life and this is what I'm sitting with right now. And that's allowing younger folk and elders to be like, huh, maybe there's more possible than I thought. That's how you can continue to support my work.
that's whether I know or not, and please tell me <laughs> if, it, if it's letting you do that, but whether I know or not, the vibration that that puts into the universe is vast and huge and necessary, and I am grateful. So I hope that this work and all the work that I do continues to uh, affirm that, affirm a deeper knowing of ourselves and one another in this beautiful planet and spirit which affirms who we are, which means we can't be monolithic, which means we can't be in a crooked room, which means we can't be rigid or fixed or stuck. If the universe, if spirit affirms who we are and it's vast, we are vast. So, yeah, I hope uh, I hope that's all percolating with you so a few more things I wanted to touch base on before I get into the meat of the episode I have been doing and invited to and being invited to participate in a lot of cool collaborate collaborations with brilliant people and um yeah I'm going to share some of the links to dope ass dope ass shit I've been able to do (laughs) this year and last year so one I was invited to be on an episode of our mother's gardens podcast and that is hosted by Satya Nelms I'm on episode four love and be loved and I will share a link for that in the show notes that was a wonderful conversation um earlier this year what is time I have no idea but uh Talked about just ideas on mothering, motherhood, my personal relationship with my mother, uh, just real good shit. I also recently published an article entitled Pleasure and Presence, Non-Monogamy and Non-Linear Time. And that was hosted on That Gal Ray's Up Close and Personal, the TGR blog Sex Positivity Series. So I am really proud of that as well. It is yeah, definitely a bit personal and just exploring some of my ideas around non-monogamy, around the truth, the fact of non-linear time. And um, again, just that there are more things that are possible than the very rigid boxes we've been given that we're told all of humanity is supposed to fit in, which makes no sense at all. So definitely check, check that out and shout out to uh, the host, Ray. She and I went to school together, went to undergrad together. Another wonderful project that I had the opportunity to work on last year that was published this year was uh, the Young Adele, or the, yeah, Young Adele novel Root Magic by Eden Royce. And um, just real quick, I met the author, the brilliant author, um, Geechee Gal Eden Royce on Twitter. I believe she lives in England and another, um, another friend had posted a thread of just Gullah Geechee people he knew and was connected to online and that's how we met she reached out and actually had me do the audio for a an audio version of a short story she had published in 2019 called Witches from Mars so that was a dope project I actually share that in the show notes as well um that is also on my website but the book the um the child, the young adult novel Root Magic. Just to read a little bit about that, uh, the synopsis says it is 1963 and things are changing for Jezebel Turner. Her beloved grandmother has just passed away. 
the local police deputy won't stop harassing her family. With school integration arriving in South Carolina, Jez and her twin brother Jay are about to begin the school year with a bunch of new kids. But the biggest change comes when Jez and Jay turn 11 and their uncle Doc tells them he's going to train them in root work. And it is not a moment too soon because when evil both natural and supernatural comes to show itself in town, it's going to take every bit of the magic Jez has inside to see her through. So it's an amazing, incredible story. I uh, grew up loving uh, novels and books with black girls on the cover that uh, allowed me to see myself. I was able to um, help in a consulting capacity as well as write an essay for the educator's guide that accompanies this book. So uh, letting folks know about Gullah Geechee culture, some historical and present context that, uh, frames or yeah just gives more context to these brilliant stories that Eden is telling so you can find that book um, I think it is available everywhere that books are sold and the Root Magic Educator's Guide as I said I got to um, contribute a piece to that is free and available online and I so I will share I will share that link in the show notes as well Next, I'm pretty sure I have referenced my article, Be Here Now, The South is a Portal, that was published by Root Work Journal last summer, um, several times on the podcast and in the conversation with my mom, Ms. Jan and Ms. Barbara, but I definitely wanted to share a link for that here for those who have not read it because, yes, yeah, uh, I feel like most of the work that I'm doing now has so much of what I've been doing has been cultivating into my understanding of the South being a portal. And now so much of what I continue to do is falling under that banner. And so I want to share these ideas and these feelings and these understandings that I have channeled with as many people as possible. And also just shout out to Root Work Journal. They just began um, last summer I think was their novel issue and uh, just brilliant brilliant contributors brilliant offerings uh yeah I'm really pleased and then final announcement before I get into as I said the meat of the episode I haven't talked about this yet but my brother Simeon Zays and um Sherard Duvall who is the director and producer uh, we are collaborating on a documentary called Saltwater Vibes, Sankofa Seeds from Geechee Roots. That is the working title. My brother and I are both executive producing and um, we are exploring Gullah Geechee culture, identity from our perspective, the perspective of, of our peers, um, what it means to stand up um or ground ourselves proudly in this identity now, what it means for us, what it has meant. Um, recognizing that our generation has a different level of agency to name ourselves and define our identities for ourselves, what it means to collect, connect with one another throughout the diaspora, and also finding or identifying or helping to develop or create a particular sound, a genre that is uniquely um, Gullah Geechee. And as we know, Gullah Geechee isn't isolated to one state, one um, city, one island. 
Um, while we understand the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor extends from, I think, Wilmington, North Carolina, all the way to, I've just forgotten, but the northern tip of Florida, that's not, it's not like that's where the Gullah Geechee people live and <laughs> we don't live anywhere else. So um, what it means to utilize music in particular as a vehicle for connecting, for evolving um, a culture. And I just recognizing that Gullah Geechee people are, are vast because we're black. Black people are vast <laughs> and we're everywhere and um, dynamic. So for the Saltwater Vibes documentary, we've actually had four monthly clubhouse conversations on some of the themes that we are talking about and hoping to flesh out in the film. We always say this has way more to do with asking and acknowledging new questions more so than any definitive answer that we would have at this time in 2021 as the world continues to shift. Um, but yeah, to acknowledge one, all the work that has been laid that allows this particular aspect of the African diaspora to know ourselves in this way right now and what are our visions for the future. And of course, personally, not just for Gullah Geechee people, but for all people of the African diaspora and largely like humanity. What, how will we be well? How will we have what we need? How will we imagine a society where everyone has what we need? So yeah, I will share links for all of the things that I mentioned. If you're interested in checking out the Clubhouse Talks, like I said, we've been doing them monthly and you can follow the Saltwater Vibes Instagram page or Facebook um, and it is announced when we're having those. So I'll share the links for those as well. We are going to go ahead and get into the meat of this episode. All right. So I really wanted to give some context or uh, background to what I am about to share, but for some reason I'm struggling with it. So I want to say this is a piece that I wrote this year and shared at a conference for school uh, last semester. And it is largely looking at patriarchy and um, just like what gives, like what the fuck? can we please <laughs> can we please go on can we please can we please dismantle this shit so that our species and the planet can live and thrive uh as one as we were intended and um yeah there's a lot of questions that i'm asking in this piece and connections that i'm making and drawing across the african diaspora so i presented it like i said at school over zoom at a zoom conference Definitely felt like people did not know what I was talking about. And if they did, they didn't feel comfortable. Uh, <laughs> they didn't feel comfortable sharing. Um, yeah, the questions didn't necessarily give to me what I had hoped the piece might have given to them and what I hope that the piece gives to y'all. So, um, Content or trigger warning for both sexual assault and female genital mutilation, as these were, uh, yeah, these were these were heavy heavy um, topics 
that I was exploring and that came up in doing the research for this piece in particular, as I know I mentioned, or maybe not, but in 2019, my family and several others traveled to Sierra Leone, West Africa for a 10-day research study tour hosted and facilitated by Fan Boutique. And um, while there, I learned about the presence or the the persistence of um, genital mutilation or abbreviated as a FGM. And so, yeah, these are very heavy, heavy topics, heavy experiences that um, a lot of different folks can relate to. But I wanted to let you know that those things will be mentioned in case this particular episode or portion of the episode um, is something you need to come back to or not listen to. Uh, do 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 what it is that you need to do for your spirit. I guess the most context I can give as to why I'm sharing this episode on sharing this piece on the podcast is uh if you listen to episode two when I was talking to my mom, Miss Jan and Miss Barbara, I mentioned that I talked to Miss Barbara kind of regularly to stay alive. And as you heard, she is a an intuitive, a channeler, a seer. She gets messages from the folk. And uh, one thing she told me about my work and my purpose per my ancestors is that I I time travel and dimension hop and space travel to get messages for the collective that I am supposed to propel forward. Like I'm supposed to fling them out (laughs) and not like in some haphazard destructive way, more so like. What I channel is supposed to go very far. And I get overwhelmed trying to think about how I'm supposed to share it. And these are questions I've had for myself, trying to make sense of my own life. And maybe they will be helpful to you. So this podcast, all the Sankofa shadow work I do, the South is a Portal curriculum series, which I'll talk about more in a minute. All of that is... Honoring the purpose apparently I chose before I came here and that my ancestors and my Ori and my spiritual team and my beloved community have protected and loved me long enough to get here to continue to do, hopefully with more efficiency and proficiency than before. So, yes, we're going to get into this audio essay. Radical means getting to the root. What was the original intent? I've always known my subjectivities shape the questions I ask. As a queer black Gullah Geechee woman and the child of two griots or storytellers, I have a unique vantage point from which to explore how I got to be who I am and how I might survive within and imagine outside of this white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist society. What I know and how I know it is validated by my ancestors, family, my sister friends, black and indigenous people, queer and trans, non-binary, disabled and poor folk, people who have been pushed the furthest into the margins and thus must nurture radical imaginations to manifest freer possibilities. In the introduction to All the Women Are White, 
All the blacks are men, but some of us are brave. Akasha Hull and Barbara Smith explain, like any politically disenfranchised group, black women could not exist consciously until we began to name ourselves. Merely to use the term black women's studies is an act charged with political significance. At the very least, the combining of these words to name a discipline means taking the stance that black women exist and exist positively, a stance that is in direct opposition to most of what passes for culture and thought on the North American continent. I'm interested in the roots of patriarchal violence. I want to understand the original choice to organize gender and subjugate based on body type and genitalia. When and where and why and how and can we be honest about how much these constructed hierarchies harm and oppress all of us? Yes, I mean that patriarchy is also killing cisgender men with penises and rational minds. I am both a historian and an Afrofuturist and fully committed to nonlinear time. So the following exploration will jump timelines, space, continents, and dimensions because that's what Black people are always doing anyway. Dr. Sheila Walker defines Afrogenics as growing out of the histories, ways of being and knowing, and interpretations and interpretive styles of African and African diasporan peoples. There are things about us, the ways we speak, think, and move, and our relationships to each other and our surroundings that can only be understood when Africana people are considered the polylithic, polycultural rule and not the exception or a problem that needs to be solved. In the preface of her book, The Invention of Women, Nigerian scholar Oyeronke Oyewumi writes, this book is not about the so-called woman question. The woman question is a Western derived issue a legacy of the age-old somatocentricity in Western thought. It is an imported problem, and it is not indigenous to the Yoruba. As the work in my thinking progressed, I came to realize the fundamental category woman, which is foundational in Western gender discourses, simply did not exist in Yoruba land prior to sustained contact with the West. There was no such pre-existing group characterized by shared interests, desires, or social position. The cultural logic of Western social categories is based on an ideology of biological determinism, the conception that biology provides the rationale for the organization of the social world. Social categories like women are based on body type and are elaborated in relation to and in opposition to another category, man. The presence or absence of certain organs determines social position. Dr. Oyewumi goes on to say, in African studies, historically and currently, the creation, constitution, and production of knowledge have remained the privilege of the West. Therefore, body reasoning and the biologic that derives from the biological determinism inherent in Western thought have been imposed on African societies. As I stated, my subjectivities shape my questions. 
To give more context about myself, through DNA testing, my father learned his maternal lineage was of the Timni people in Sierra Leone. Gullah Geechee people are the descendants of enslaved West and Western Central Africans who were captured and brought to the southern coastal regions of what is currently the United States. A high number of enslaved Sierra Leoneans were brought to southern slave labor camps to grow rice. Known for cultivating and growing rice for their sustenance, Sierra Leoneans sold for higher prices in the South Carolina and Georgia Lowcountry, where rice quickly began making the white planter class wealthy. In Georgetown, South Carolina, where I currently live, enslaved Africans produced one-third of the country's rice. My father is the youngest of nine children and was raised on St. Helena Island, a sea island off the coast of Beaufort County, South Carolina. In reminiscences of Sea Island heritage, my father writes, Following the capture of St. Helena and the surrounding Sea Islands by Union troops during the Civil War, about 10,000 Black inhabitants remained on the land deserted by the plantation owners and their families. The newly freed slaves bought small farm plots of land, which had been confiscated for taxes. The white population steadied at about 50 residents for many years. The isolation of the island fostered a people with a unique language, Gullah, and a unique heritage, which includes being the source of the Union's first all-black regiment, organized in 1862. My mother was born, raised, and also integrated schools in upstate New York. However, she, her siblings, and cousins were just a generation removed from the South. My maternal grandmother was born in Virginia. My maternal grandfather's people were from Uniontown, Alabama. They migrated to Buffalo at some point after white people found my great-grandfather's moonshine distillery. While a popular narrative around the great migration of African-Americans leaving the South during the 1930s and beyond suggests we all moved for economic opportunity promised in the North, what is also important to understand is that Black people were escaping violence, white terrorism, terrorism that was nuanced but not uncommon in the Northern and Midwestern areas they migrated to. On slavery in Alabama, Keith Herbert writes, when Alabama seceded from the Union in 1861, the state's 435,080 slaves made up 45% of the total population. The largest numbers of slaves were held in bondage in counties located in either the Tennessee River Valley or the Black Belt region. Alabama gained statehood during a period when cotton production was spreading throughout the South. Most of Alabama's antebellum era settlers originated from areas such as Eastern Georgia and Western South Carolina. Many of these settlers who owned slaves before their move to Alabama came in search of cheap, productive land on which to grow cotton. Many more enslaved people were brought to Alabama by slave traders such as those operating in Mobile and Montgomery, where the state's largest slave auction houses were located. It should be understood that whenever enslaved people were sold, auctioned, and traded, they were split up from their families. Children, siblings, aunts, uncles, spouses, cousins, grandparents, friends. 
People gave birth and had no rights to who they gave birth to. The enslaved were entirely at the mercy of those holding them. During a conversation about gender and motherhood at Rhodes University, Professor Zine Magubane asks, by what means did you become gendered? And what function does it play? In a North American context, a woman or mother is subordinated to being a wife or somebody's daughter. In the context of slavery in North America, what does that make an enslaved African in America who has no natal claim on their children, no legal right to be married, no legal right to be recognized as a sexually assaulted person? When I'm sitting with this category of gender from a particular tradition and having to use it to explain my existence, the only thing I can come away from all I can conclude is there is only one woman, and that is the woman who is raced as white. That is the only woman who can be legally recognized as a wife. That is the only woman who isn't natally alienated from her child. That is the only woman who is legally rapable if the accused is not her spouse. They knew enslaved women had the same biological capacity their entire economic system was predicated on it. So it is not the biological capacity to have sexual intercourse or to have children. Rather, what isn't recognized is the property claim. What constitutes gender? Why does it make a difference if you are a boy or a girl? Persons gendered as female were not allowed to inherit or own property. Enslaved women could not inherit property. They were property. The definition of woman in the context of slavery was a property question, but we've understood it as a biological one. Dr. Margaret Washington argues that Sierra Leonean secret societies influenced the spiritual and religious practices developed by enslaved West Africans and their Gullah Geechee descendants on Southern plantations. In a peculiar people, slave religion, and community culture among the Gullahs. Washington focuses on Gullah Geechee people on St. Helena Island. In December 2019, my family and over 60 other Black American and Gullah Geechee people traveled to Sierra Leone for a historical research study tour. While there, I learned of the persistence of female genital mutilation, or FGM as a component of initiation for Sierra Leonean female secret societies. Interestingly enough, Washington's exploration of Poro, the male secret society, and Sande, or Bondo, the female secret society origins, suggests more fear and gendered violence. Gola, Bulungizi, and Mende peoples all claim responsibility for the spread of these secret organizations. Golas say the male Poro evolved from the female Sandy. We were ruled by women and looked to our mothers. Washington writes, In the beginning was Sandy, a woman's society which governed and was the custodian of ritual and of the spiritual powers necessary to defend ancestral interests. And into the days of peace and perfect order came terrible wars but women resisted the men's mobilization for defense. 
Thus, the men invented a forest monster, the great spirit of Poro, a mask form, which frightened the women. This spirit provided men with the power to wrest control of the country, take away sons, teach them the art of war and politics, and to enforce loyalty exclusively among males via the secret bush initiation. In these ways, the Gola defeated their enemies and became great people. Yet, a compromise of sorts was reached. Sandy remained a force, and the two societies shared a sacred and secular power. But Sandy's power was diluted and divided, symbolized by their initiation period being shorter than Poros. By the time of European contact, Golas were patrilineal people whose greatness had long waned. Sierra Leonean scholar Aisha Fofana Ibrahim writes, The Bondo Bush, the sacred place for society women, is often located in the forest far away from daily life. The Bondo is very hierarchical and has a well-defined organizational structure with a head Sowi and other members in various other positions. Sowis are expected to undergo an intensive two to three year period of training in how to perform genital cutting and apply medicinal remedies. Sowiship is often hereditary and handed down from generation to generation. The institution itself is synonymous with women's power, their political, economic, reproductive, and ritual spheres of influence. Excision, or removal of the external clitoral glands and labia minora in initiation is a symbolic representation of matriarchal power. Dr. Ibrahim goes on to say, anti-FGM advocates tend to emphasize the health risks of the procedure, drawing their expertise from experience and research, both of which demonstrate that excised women and girls face many complications, including urinary retention, bleeding, pain, septicemia, and vaginal fistula, which in most instances lead to social ostracism and divorce. The initiation and surgery is required to be considered a member of the community. However, health risks of the said surgical procedure can result in being ostracized from the same community. It is important to note that practices like this have existed and persist in various parts of the world. And as in the case of Sierra Leone, they existed prior to the arrival of Europeans. On this side of the Atlantic Ocean, the father of gynecology, J. Marion Sims, claim to fame was curing vaginal fistula. He determined this cure by experimenting endlessly on enslaved women suffering from the illness in 1840s Alabama. Betsy, Lucy, and Annika are the only three whose names were recorded. In Black on Both Sides, A Radical History of Trans Identity, C. Riley Snorton writes, A vesicovaginal fistula, VVF, is a breach in the vaginal wall that opens into the urinary tract and produces continuous involuntary discharge of urine. VVFs 
are the result of a massive crush injury to the soft tissues of the pelvis. According to Dorinda Ojanuga, chattel persons were particularly at risk for VVF because of poor nutrition, lack of prenatal care, and births at an early age. This brings me back to another point Dr. Oyewumi made. She spoke about a white female slaveholder who had several children of her own. This woman also owned a black female teenager. She gave the enslaved teenager to one of her children, and she bequeathed the teenager's potential children to her other offspring. The enslaved teen was not pregnant, meaning this white woman gendered her property and assumed reproductive capabilities and then promised these future babies to her own children as property they could one day anticipate. Dr. Oyewumi says, colonization is about taking away your sovereignty. They, colonizers, laid out institutions that were not responsive to the colonized. And as a result of this, we have all sorts of cultures of impunity from the top down. And men now have this notion that their families are their properties and they can do whatever they want. Since my trip to Sierra Leone, I've been drawing connections between Sierra Leonean and Black American and Gullah Geechee women. The current FGM debate and the known negative physical and mental impacts of the practice suggest to me that Black American women's suffering didn't begin with slavery. The subordination of our female-bodied ancestors pre-existed slavery and colonization. In On the False Binary of Masculine and Feminine in Astrology, sidereal astrologist Dana Knuckles disrupts the binary by exploring Mars, the planet which rules Scorpio and Aries. Knuckles writes, This also relates to the concept of an objective form or social construct where a pattern of form is observed and from that observed pattern is created a construct. The construct is now separate from the form from which it was inspired by. And now the forms which inspired the construct are forced to conform to, read, change their form and take the shape of that construct. You can understand this as relating to any noun used to describe or define a human. Every single one is a construct from boy, girl, woman, man, family, teacher, etc., each began as an observation of form from which a construct was created. Knuckles closes the article with, for example, mother is a social construct. I have no problem with mother. It is an accurate descriptor of the role I play in certain contexts. I have a problem with how identifying with and taking on this role situates me in terms of who and what I have access to in society. Similarly, I have no problem with woman as an identity. However, I don't believe the ways I've been conditioned to understand womanhood in the West have ever made enough space for me. 
like Knuckles, I reject the roles I'm assigned to and the lack of access I have based on this society's ideas about and desire to control my body. On an episode of Marsha's Plate, Black Trans Talk podcast titled Between the Ears, Not the Legs, Texas-based trans activist Diamond Styles cites three different scientific articles to articulate how gender identity development has very little to do with our genitalia. Diamond says, countless studies show that there is a genetic basis to gender identity. For example, the shape of the corpus callosum which is the portion of the brain that connects and facilitates communication between the right and left hemispheres, is reversed in trans people. The shape of a trans woman's corpus callosum prior to any hormone use matches that of cis women, and trans masculine people's corpus callosum matches that of cis men's. The evidence shows that there is a brain sex between your ears as opposed to between your legs. Diamond goes on to say, if your mental sex is going one way and your physical sex is going another, this would likely manifest as trans identity. And because all of the rules of society, how that manifests is going to be very different. You could be born into a family that affirms and allows your trans identity to develop. Or you could be born into a toxic environment where your identity is not affirmed. There is a genetic basis to gender identity, and the environment plays a huge role in how your identity manifests. This is true for all of us, regardless of our gender identity. The toxic environment Americans live in tells all of us, I can tell you who you are, what you are capable and deserving of, and who it is okay for you to love based on my perceptions of your body and how I believe your body works. Diamond also shared an 1870 Texas newspaper clip with me via Twitter. In it, a formerly enslaved, gender non-conforming person celebrates their freedom in a unique way and is thus prosecuted. The clip reads, Some weeks ago, a couple of young men were arrested in London for being dressed and appearing in the streets in women's clothes. They were bound over to court and will be tried for this very grave infringement on women's rights. A black Chevalier Dion has turned up in Texas. He is a young man who from his youth up has had a desire to dress exclusively in women's apparel and likes to sew, quilt, knit, cook, and long for the ballot. Once he was a slave and sometimes compelled to dress as a man, but when the year of Jubilo came, Dick Montgomery, such is his name, rushed madly into liberty in female clothes and wildly proclaimed that his name was Lizzie. So far as is known, no court has taken upon itself to arraign this man in woman's clothes for infringing upon women's vested rights. As Diamond told me, Jubilo is another reference to Juneteenth. What we have here is documentation of enslaved gender non-conforming people. A completely new interpretation of how freedom was celebrated in Texas 
and in America by the formerly enslaved. There is so much for us to understand when we widen our lenses. Stories that affirm we are born the ways we are born on purpose and that it is up to us and loving community to determine how we will show up safely. Sister Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums writes, The problematic core construct was that in order to be sane, which is to live in one body, which is to live one lifetime at one time, which is to disconnect from the black simultaneity of the universe, you could and must deny black femininity and somehow breathe. The fundamental fallacy being, obvious now, obscured at the time, that there is no separation from the black simultaneity of the universe, also known as everything, also known as the black feminist pragmatic intergenerational sphere. Everything is everything. Another Dana Knuckles quote I love is decolonization starts in the body. For me, this means just because our bodies don't determine our gender, purpose, role, or abilities doesn't mean our bodies are wrong or something we should reject or ignore. In fact, embracing and understanding our bodies and the myriad ways they function outside of the false gender binary and ableist definitions of humanity would eliminate so much shame, harm, and trauma for all of us. The Combi River Collective clearly articulates that everyone would be free if Black women were free, because our freedom necessitates the destruction of every form of oppression. Gums and many other brilliant Black scholars, many who are queer, trans, non-binary people, are grappling with understandings and manifestations of who we are beyond our genitalia while simultaneously tapping into the somatic wisdom of our bodies. Meaning the exclusive liberation of cis black women is no liberation at all. Liberation is for all of us. Mind, body, soul integration is for all of us. Lastly, in Of Water and the Spirit, Ritual Magic and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman, Maladoma Somme describes a ritual in which an unborn child speaks through the pregnant parent and tells the community who they are. Somme writes, the living must know who is being reborn, where the soul is from, why it chose to come here, and what gender it has chosen. The name of the newborn is based upon the results of these communications. A name is the life program of its bearer. This has always resonated with me. It makes way more sense for the spirit of the child to tell the living who they are and what they came here to do. The notion that once a person is born, someone looks at their genitals and then tells them who they are is violent and absurd. It is a subversion of the divine. I close by repeating Professor Magubane's questions and some of my own. By what means did you become gendered? What function does it play? Whom does it benefit? Does it benefit you? 
Who would you be if you knew you were enough already? Does this violent system we've been indoctrinated to uphold give you enough space to be that? If not, what are we all going to do about it? All right. So I can't say as confidently as I said on episode two that you're feeling like refreshed and loved (laughs) and surrounded by care and possibility, but I hope so. I hope you are able to, again, just recognize that there's more out there. There's more realities. There are more versions of reality than what we have been taught. And a lot of what we accept as the only way things can be is a construct of somebody's imagination and not ours, not ours. In fact, this current construct that we're living in separates us from our bodies, our feelings, our emotions, our innate inherent wisdom. It separates us from our ability to imagine something greater, to know that there are infinite possibilities and probabilities. There is so much more than this. So giving honor to each and every one of us who have survived it. And I'm not talking about like every person within the sound of my voice as much as like humanity. And particularly African and indigenous people who have survived this so that we could be here. So we could be alive right now to ask these questions and think about different things. Look at all the resources and the grids that have been left for us on purpose so we can say, nah, maybe there's something else. Maybe my purpose is greater. Maybe I decided to be here right now. And I know I didn't decide to be here to make (laughs) Bezos rich or even Rihanna, you know, (laughs) our purpose is, is, is great and vast and I affirm that we continue to dismantle these systems, dismantle this crooked room and see that there's more, see that we are more, see that we are deserving of so much more than um, the limited, rigid, violent ass boxes this system has put us in. We are so much more than this collective figment of insecure people's imagination. We are so much more than this projection of scarcity That is so false. Again, when you look at the universe, (laughs) you know, when you look at the universe, you know, when you look at nature, you know, when we, when you, when you can really look at yourself, you know, capitalism is a lie. That's why capitalism don't want us to really look at ourselves. (laughs) That's why white supremacy and patriarchy separate us from our souls, from our bodies. It's not, an, it's not an accident. This shit is working how it is supposed to. And when I think even more so about a lot of the trauma that I uh, articulated in this piece, the awareness that we inherit trauma, that we inherit these experiences, that we respond in the present to lesser or more subtle triggers than the actual experiences our ancestors had but we are still living in that trauma loop. Whew. You know, you just want to have so much grace. You want to have so much grace for those who came before us. You want to have so much grace for 
all the human potential, the uh, the human experience that Miss Barbara talked about in the last episode that was that was essentially thwarted, that was cut off, um, out of insecurity, out of greed, out of out of a lie, out of a void, out of the belief that I can't matter unless I'm on top of you. When the honor that we carry that and there are also different ways to look at our ancestors and ourselves when we fully grapple with what we have been navigating the marvel that we exist in the present at all the fact that if we exist in the present at all it can't be no accident it can't be no accident so yeah let me know what you think let me know what you feel let me know how that's sitting with you as i mentioned earlier the uh written version of that piece is on my patreon it includes all of the resources that i quoted and brought in i just get a kick out of blackness and black people (laughs) It's just the things that we can really begin to see and understand when we are connected, when we know when we know it's not just one thing, it's not just one way. There are more ways to be. Oh yes. Um, so I affirm that. All right. Transitioning again to the purple and green segment. For those of you who are not familiar, this segment is a nod to the Alice Walker quote. I think it pisses God off if you walk past the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. People think pleasing God is all God cares about, but any fool, but any fool living in the world can see it always trying to please us back. And so the purple and green segment is all about the universe, God, spirit, the ancestors, our community, each other, loving us back. The uh, the ever-present disproving of the crooked room, which thankfully uh, the disproving is all around us. So that is purple and green, and I am going to share a couple of excerpts from the oracle that is sister dr alexis pollen gums this comes from her most recent book undrowned black feminist lessons from marine mammals and um like i said sis is an oracle i feel like she writes intentionally as an oracle and I have four of her books. I think that's all the books she has published. I know I said in episode one, I used to just Google her and be like, what's she talking about? Where, what else, what other brilliant thing has she said? But um, I say all that to say, I feel like you can open up any book that she's written and just the page that you read is like, oh, this is what I needed right now. So I was trying to figure out what would be affirming after what has obviously been a really a really heavy audio essay and um just a heavy ass life heavy ass summer heavy ass year so this first piece comes from the section titled surrender and what happens if we just let go 
like dolphins who beach themselves on shore to eat and trust the tide to bring them back into the water, or who time their birth cycles to seasonal floods, or migrate across the world following warm currents on a menopausal planet. What it would take to tune in with our environment enough to be in flow with the earth instead of in struggle against it. All right, and this next piece comes from the section, Respect Your Hair. And uh, it generally makes me cry every time I read it. I'm going to try to get through it so that y'all understand what I'm saying. The fact that you grew up not knowing that narwhals were a real animal swimming around in the Arctic right now is not a coincidence. It is the result of a long and lucrative conspiracy. Turns out, since the Middle Ages, whalers, traders, explorers, and even chemists collaborated to hide the existence of the narwhal as a real animal, while selling their tusks as unicorn horns at a huge profit. It makes me think about the ways enforced marginality and increased profit margins have been linked to each other for a long time. It makes me think about who benefited all this time from the conspiracy to pretend I didn't exist. And then later, the lie that the only real part of me was the part they could sell. I certainly know who was harmed. I was. Those who would behead me knowingly sacrificed me to a lucrative idea, while also banishing the threat of my actual magic. Who was harmed? You were. You suffered the tragedy of trading the actual accountable magic of the planet for a myth about specialness. You choked your own self with enough heteronormative fairy tales to fund generations of delusions. We were harmed, all of us, because there is blood in the water at the limit of our dreams. The ways we are cut off have consequences and the market circles. One day, after studying whale sounds at the Aquarium of the Pacific, my partner and I bought a puzzle for our nieces of Emily Winfield Martin's Dream Narwhal Painting. We wanted it because of the impossible and very real whale that is depicted and because of the impossible and very real black girl in the image, breathing underwater, looking forward in her dreams. My oldest niece, an animal guidebook in herself, was two years old at the time. And as she put the puzzle together, she said, Bonita, Bonita, and lovingly touched the painted hair. Who benefited from the conspiracy to teach us that we were not beautiful, that we were not possible? Who first turned our adaptation into profit? Our deep, sharp realness into fairy tale dust to sell back to us when we noticed ourselves, turning that prior scarcity of representation into a very high profit margin for whom? Ask the narwhal. Supply and demand work overtime that way. Make you happy to buy what you already have. At just the right moment, The scholar, Tavia Nyong'o, reminded me that to conspire means to breathe together. Like narwhals do by the hundreds every summer, it's happening now. 
May we activate and renew the oldest conspiracy. Remember all the thick and possible breathing before us and after us and with us. Too real to be for sale. Too beautiful to be forgotten. Too magical for theft. I am still unlearning the coping mechanisms I created when I thought I was impossible within myself. And the equally harmful tactics I internalized when I believed the tokenizing myth that I was and should be the only one of my kind. And now all I want is to breathe together. For we are real with a power beyond commodified magic. Even commodified black girl magic and representational gifts. We are real. We are beyond. When we conspire with our ancestors to honor our dreams. When we tap into the part of us that is not for sale. So unmarketable that the capitalists say it don't exist, but it do. It is you. It is all of us. I love you. My realest dream. My wildest truth. You beautiful puzzle, the air I breathe. And may the creator and the ancestors and all the animals and all of nature add a blessing to the reading of these words. Ashe. So I, um, usually I'm crying, but, uh, I hope y'all got what I'm saying. And if you missed it, please um, do it anyway. Get Undrowned Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals. Like I said, all of Dr. Alexis Pauline Gum's work um, is a is an oracle. And um, there's something to get on every page and every line. I don't even want to. I don't feel like any of that needs any context. And I feel like it is such a perfect uh, accompaniment to to um radical means getting to the root and that uh there's more we are vast we are big we are real you know we are not for sale we are not inferior so i hope that y'all were as affirmed by that as i was So last, but certainly not least, as I teased earlier in the episode, I'm getting ready to drop some offerings and I hope that you will tap into them. They largely fall under the South is a Portal curriculum series and this is Sankofa Shadow Work. I am dropping the first course of this series this month. This month is September. The course is called The Room Afrofuturism as a Path to Our Retroactive Healing. And it was designed from my creative master's thesis around Black women's epigenetic trauma, Afrofuturism, womanism, Black feminism, healing, nonlinear time, and a whole bunch of other dope things that I love talking about. This course is eight weeks or eight modules, and it is work at your own pace. Um, once it is available, you can download download it and work on it um, as you see fit. I'm still playing around with uh, 
with ways that I'm going to offer it. It's going to be available on my website, but I really want to encourage like collaboration. I really want to encourage like small group working on this stuff together. Even if, like I said, it's at your own time, we all have different responsibilities and priorities and everyday needs, but I, I really want to encourage and affirm folks working on it, not simply in isolation. Um, cause in this moment as I am, wow, just sitting with so much, sitting with getting ready to launch this course, which feels like a culmination of stuff I've been working on for a long time. I'm sitting with how heavy so much of these themes are, how the weight of this shadow work, this Sankofa shadow work, this gathering and downloading messages from different timelines and dimensions for myself, for my own well, well-being, for my own orientation and um exiting of this crooked room but also for the collective like this shit is hard <laughs> it's painful it's painful to acknowledge what we have come through what we have survived it is affirming to recognize how we have survived it is painful to acknowledge that we can't take the same survival methods with us it is affirming that we can forgive ourselves and give ourselves and our ancestors grace um, it is painful to think about the fact that we inherit trauma and then so much of this trauma was not our fault or the fault, you know, of our ancestor. This is affirming to know that we don't just inherit trauma, that we also inherit gifts and wisdom and love and possibility. So, yeah. I hope that you will check out the course um, and a few other things that are getting ready to drop towards the end of this year. You can go to my website, sarahmckeeper.com on the page marked sign up. If you haven't already signed up on my website, you can sign up there to um, read and get more information about the course when it launches. I don't know if you heard my stomach growling. I'm sorry. I'm fasting today. Um, I don't know why I'm sorry. I guess maybe because it's like, I don't know. That was my stomach growling. <laughs> but, um, yeah, those things will be available coming soon. I'm um, also speaking of another collaboration. I had the honor of co-facilitating with a trap therapist, Afu Oralake Okosin. And um, we did a training or workshop series with uh, high school, middle school and some uh, high school graduates, uh, high school graduates out of Chicago uh, this summer. And um, it may have been one of the most affirming things that I did this year. So we actually talked about the South as a portal. Uh, the course was titled the South as a portal beginners course to emotional intelligence via trap therapy and Afrofuturism. And it was a really dope collaboration. I'm grateful to Afu for inviting me and sharing the opportunity. I am grateful to Miss Ashley and Miss Megan who, um, work for the trio program and work so closely with the brilliant black and brown students and who are absolutely like holding down the fort and um, standing in their purpose and their roles as it relates to being who these young people need. All of the students were brilliant. I think we met 
I can't remember how many days we met just now, but what I'm saying is all the students were brilliant. I remember two of the students' names just because they were there every day, and also they were brilliant, but shout out to Bam and Kiki for showing up every day and uh, showing up, showing up, and like being committed to their wellness and their healing and um, loving themselves, and like, whew, yeah, it was so affirming because I want to say uh, Kiki, who is getting ready she just started her final year of high school. She was talking about what her inner child needs. This is what my inner child needs. And I'm like, whoa, you know, if it's teens, <laughs> if it's teens working with their inner child right now, we may one day have a generation of folk who do not have to heal from their childhood. I hope that excites you like it excites me. So shout out to everyone involved with that collaboration. And if you are interested in having me and Afu Okasin, um therapist and spiritualist facilitate this emotional intelligence via trap therapy and Afrofuturism at your program with your young folk, with your youth, um, shoot me a message via my website or um, on IG because that was Again, just talking about being in spaces that affirm that I know what I know. Oh, and I think I can actually end right here. So doing that work with the students out of Chicago this summer was affirming for so many ways. I had not mentioned on mic, but I made the decision to leave the PhD program. It was very traumatic and painful, the experience, <laughs> but it was also painful to make the decision to leave. And I'm actually working on um, a video that will be on my Patreon, really detailing that decision. I just recognize that's something I'm not I don't really just necessarily want everybody in the world to have access to. And I may feel differently about that later. But, um, yeah, there will be, if you're interested in learning more about why I chose to leave a doctoral program, uh, you can check out the Patreon. Um, working with the students in Chicago affirmed that I know enough to teach. And it's not that there aren't all these other, you know, purple and green moments, all these other affirmations that I know what I know, but in particular, just so profound and affirming for me. So I talked to the students and also shout out to Afu. I mentioned Afu on the first episode in the purple and green segment. And um, he has just been a really supportive possibility model for entrepreneurship for standing in confidence with what I know or how I know it and um, offering and making a life for myself based on like my purpose and um, so a lot of the different things that we talk about he and he encouraged me to share with the students we talked to the students about the crooked room I was introduced to the crooked room uh, in Melissa Harris Perry's book, Sister Citizen, Dr. Consuela Francis, who I mentioned and shout out, shouted out and affirmed in episode one, my favorite professor and now ancestor recommended that book to me hmm, probably 2010. Well, whenever the book had just come out, I was working on a a paper in class about the negative impacts of uh, media on black women 
like negative stereotypes of black women or something like that. And I was passing Dr. Consuela on the street and I was just like, I'm writing this paper. You know anything I can look into? And she was like, hey, read this book. It just came out. And so that book heavily impacted my um, master's degree research. In that book, Melissa Harris Perry talks about the Crooked Room. It is based on a World War II field study in which participants are brought into a space and um, what researchers are trying to determine is if they can position themselves upright in an environment. And so they're brought into this room with essentially a crooked floor and crooked walls and crooked ceiling and maybe the chair is crooked. The things in the room are crooked and a participant is told to position themselves upright in this room. And researchers said that some of the participants reported or some of the participants were bent. They were tilted. They tilted their bodies at least 30 degrees. But they reported to the researchers that they were upright based on the surrounding, based on their alignment with the crooked room. And um, Melissa Paris, Melissa Harris Perry makes that an analogy for black women in this white supremacist patriarchal capitalist society that, uh, we are trying to align ourselves with a room essentially crafted in our opposition and the trauma and the weight and the distortion and delusion we carry trying to align with this system. And that is not simply true for black women. Um, but I try to bring it up to folk all the time. I know when I learn that, I'm like, oh, everybody got to know this because it's not us. We're not just fucked up. <laughs> We're not just inherently wrong. And this is me speaking to myself. Oh, I'm not just fucked up. I'm not just inherently wrong. I'm not just worthless. I'm not just can't get right. It's the environment. It's an environment that came after me. It's an environment that is void of spirit and soul. I am not void of spirit and soul. So, yeah, I brought the cookie room to the students in Chicago. And the final day that we met with the students, Kiki told us that she had talked to her dad about the crooked room. <sighs> and then she said she was looking forward to talking to her mama about the cooker room. That's worth more than anything to me. That's worth more than anything that an institution could tell me that I'm worth. That there's a, a black 17 year old in Chicago that is dismantling this crooked room within herself and giving her elders the framework to do so. that I learned about the cooking room from my ancestor, Consuela Francis. You can't beat that shit, okay? That's that's really what I what I got for y'all. You can't beat this shit. And um, yeah, I'm scared. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't always feel possible to make a living doing what I came to the earth to do. I do not always feel possible. I don't always feel worth compensation, worth money. 
I don't always feel like I'm supposed to be in the front, like I'm supposed to be telling anybody anything. I don't always feel like I'm supposed to have any security. And then there are moments like that that just make me feel so hopeful and so possible and so capable and so connected to and so committed to continuing to breathe together, which as Sister Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums reminded us, is the oldest conspiracy. So yeah, I think that is all. I am wishing you goodness. I am wishing you ease. I am wishing you grace. I am wishing you peace. I am wishing you rest. I am wishing you exactly what it is you need. I am wishing you the ability to identify and name that. And whether or not you are able to do so, I wish and affirm that you get exactly what that is. Until next time, peace.